recordings for good. All right, let's pray if you guys would just agree with me. Father, we lift up tonight as we get into the word. I feel this is an important word for River of Life, especially in the days to come. And Lord, I pray tonight, Lord, that there would be such an open heaven, that your presence increase. Your presence is already here, but Lord, just an increase of your presence. Lord, I pray a fresh anointing. And Lord, that the anointing and the glory be so strong on this word, that you'll come upon me and speak through me. But let all of us just be captivated by the Spirit of God to have eyes and ears of the Spirit and on our eyes, our ears, to be able to see and perceive what you're speaking. Lord, that our hearts and minds are tuned into you, that, Lord, our minds are locked into what you're speaking. And, Lord, that you would um, speak through me as living seeds of truth sown into good and fertile soil of hearts and minds and lives, watered by the Spirit of God, and take root, grow, and produce a hundredfold harvest of eternal fruit that remains. Lord, let your word go out as a, a mighty hammer that breaks down every stronghold, a sword of the spirit that cuts away what needs to go, a washing of the water of the word, cleansing, a light of truth that shines forth and dispels any type of darkness, lies, deception, and releases life, light, truth, and revelation. And let your word just go forth in glory and power and strong anointing and accomplish everything you sent it forth to do. Father, we pray all this now. In the mighty name of Jesus, we thank you for it. We believe, Lord, and we expect great things. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Right, so let me go ahead and just dovetail off of the last sermon. I'm on Spinal Prophecy Part 20, and I'm going to deal with an open heaven. But just kind of ending on the last sermon, I talked about not getting caught up with foolish debates and things like that. I know that there is a place and a time to um, you know do some kind of a rebuttal and to defend the faith I realize that there is especially when you're dealing with lost people and they have questions but the Bible does not speak good about Christians entering into these debates with each other and let me just read you the scriptures in 2 Timothy 2 23 through 25 Paul in, encourages us, he said, to refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, or that can be translated arguments. Refuse foolish and ignorant arguments, knowing that they produce quarrels. So what he's saying here is, I'll put it in today's vernacular, to try to stay away from foolish arguments because they cause fighting don't they the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome but be kind to all able to teach patient when wronged and with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth and then another scripture is 1st Timothy 6 3 through 5 and let me start with verse 3. If anyone advocates a different doctrine and does not agree with sound words, those of our Lord Jesus Christ, and with the doctrine conforming to godliness, he is conceited and understands nothing, and, but he has a morbid interest in controversial questions and disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, evil suspicion, and constant friction between the men of depraved mind and men 
deprived of the truth who suppose that godliness is a means of gain. So it's saying here to avoid these type of things. Listen, right now, just the fact that we believe that God's word, the Bible, is the word of God. It's infallible. It's perfect. It is the word of God. There's going to be people that do not agree with that out there, even among Christian circles, and they want to fight and argue. Let me just encourage you to go ahead and speak the truth in love and let it go. Don't sit there and fight and fight and fight and argue and fuss with people. And let me encourage those that go out witnessing, when you run into people like that, um, it's just time to move on to the next person. They're not ready right now. And some of you have had that happen. In fact, I distinctly remember a time that um, Brianna told me about somebody like that that just just laid into them and they, they were trying to get away from this person. They were, it was a total waste of time. And whenever you start seeing the power of God come down, souls being saved, people healed, people delivered from demons, okay? The demon, you see the power of the Holy Spirit, manifestations of the Holy Spirit, revival coming out, things that we're, we're familiar with. You have to understand that one of Satan's greatest weapons is the religious community. In Jesus' time, it really truly was the religious Pharisees and Sadducees that were his greatest enemy. It has not changed to this day. So amongst the Christians, the religious community, you know, we look at the, the, the Satanists and witches that are just, I mean, bent on the destruction of Christianity. We look at the atheists, which are just, they hate God, which is funny because how can you hate something that doesn't exist, right? And they hate God, they hate Christianity. And then you see now the, the rise of militant homosexuality, which is just truly hates God, his son, his word, hate, despise it. And you think that these are the greatest enemies to the gospel. And they are great enemies to the gospel, but the greatest enemy to the move of God where great revival takes place and a great harvest of souls is actually the religious community. Remember that. And don't let them suck you into fights debates arguments just speak the truth in love and let it go if they don't believe if they don't want to believe they want to attack the move of god i refuse to spend my time that i could be praying i could be witnessing i could be doing something constructive i spend time with my family or just whatever i refuse to spend my time debating and arguing and fussing with people that are not in a position to even receive the truth they're argument they're just argumentative and debating and those type of people are a waste of time when it comes to this debates and argues and arguments and fighting and all of that does that make sense so let me just encourage you as revival is going to be breaking forth that that is always been Satan's greatest weapon is those that are religious and they begin to come up against revival All right, so let me go ahead and dive into this. We're talking tonight about an open heaven. So if Satan tries to send these things, I just delete them. I just get rid of it. Whatever it is that, that people are trying to attack the move of God, whatever, I don't have anything to do with that nonsense. All right, Ephesians 6, 12 says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, 
but against the principalities and powers and world rulers and wickedness or spiritual forces of wickedness in heavenly places. That is our battle. As we get into this tonight, I want you to understand this. A lot of people have not really heard sermons on an open heaven. And so we're going to deal with that. I didn't even put in here sermons like in Deuteronomy where it says if you um, obey the Lord, he'll open the heavens above you. Send his rain on your land and season and bless the works of your hands. He talks about an open heaven. But he says if you disobey his word, he said I'll make the heavens brass above you. And I'll make the ground beneath you iron. That's where the principle comes from. And Jesus, when he was talking to Nathaniel, remember he saw him under the fig tree and, and Nathaniel said, wow, you are the son of God, you know. And Jesus said, you believe because I told you I saw you under a fig tree. He said, man, you're going to see a lot better than that. He said, you're going to see the heavens open and angels ascending and descending on the son of man. So Jesus lived underneath an open heaven. But look at what Paul said here. He said, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but it's against what spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenlies. We're not talking about these little demonic spirits that harass people um, that they're just annoying. These are little peon demons or little wimpy, sissy, little troll demons that scurry around and pick on the Christians that sometimes they let them do it. You know what I'm saying? We're, we're talking about stuff that a lot of people don't face in church because they're not a threat, but we're talking about wickedness in the heavenlies, principalities and powers. And what the enemy wants to do is he wants to create overhead over cities and regions and over churches, and a lot of them he's been successful, is where the heavens are like brass. It's, it's like somehow if things begin to solidify and, and they, they begin to, to um, like for example, whenever you take uh, pure water, but you were just to dump oil like black oil into it and it just got all mixed up in there that's kind of what it's like it's like all of a sudden this this darkness comes overhead and tries to brass up the heavens over a, a location over over ministries and when people are disobedient to the word of god and they're not um, being what they need to be they're not prayer warriors like they need to be satan can take advantage of these things and he can begin to brass the heavens over and what happens is the atmosphere becomes dry and sterile and it becomes difficult to pray. It becomes difficult to worship. And I'm going to tell you, because of God's house here, River of Life, things have been put in order. And I want you all to hear me because some of you are called into the ministry. I've had to put things in order. Why are the heavens open? I hope that you all hear me and understand that what I'm saying is significant tonight. This isn't my opinion. I can show you in the Bible. I've had to put stuff in order. I've had to deal with some people. And it's been painful, and, and I've lost some people over it. But whenever I refuse to go along with compromise and sins, I'm just not doing it. We're not doing it here. People have left. They've took others. They've, they've done some horrible things. But the heavens opened even more after that. It did. And those that were here during the time can testify to that that the heavens opened even more, the presence of God increased. I'm going to tell you something. We want an open heaven, but you cannot have an open heaven in a church where things are tolerated that are sinful. You have to be willing to deal with it. And that's, that's something a lot of pastors just won't do. They just don't want to do it. They don't want the fight. 
that's going to ensue when they have to do it. But you have to be willing to do it, put things in order, and deal with sin in the camp. And also, here's the next point. James 5.14 says, and this is the Amplified. This is a really good translation of the scripture. And he goes on to give Elijah as an example, which I'm going to as well in this sermon. But he says, the earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man makes tremendous power available, dynamic in its working. The King James says the effectual fervent, but see, a lot of people don't really understand what he's trying to say. This is a better translation. Listen to what it's saying here. The earnest, heartfelt prayer. That's not haphazardly coming in here going, Lord, you know, it'd be nice if you, if you would send revival. Yeah, we appreciate it. And just leaving. That's not earnest, and it's not heartfelt. I'm not saying God won't answer those prayers, but I'm saying there's a difference. There's a big difference between it being, you know, coming from your heart and earnest, heartfelt prayer. It's like a deep crying out to deep, a longing within your spirit for more of God, a deep hunger that God has put in you for him. That's an earnest, heartfelt prayer. And it says this, the earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer, continued. How many people have started to pray and they just quit praying? The continued prayer is this. I'm going to continue praying until I see it. I don't care what happens, and I don't care how long it takes. I may, I may die in that praying position and somebody else have to take it up, but I'm not going to leave my post, and I'm going to pray till God moves. The earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer of a righteous man, like a desperate cry for, for more of God. It says, if you're a righteous man and you pray that way, it makes tremendous power available, dynamic, and it's working. So it's not a haphazard prayer here. It's something that is a deep cry from within, and it's persistent. Now, I'm going to tell you, we, we've made God's house here a house of prayer, like Jesus said it's supposed to be, right? We've made it a house of prayer. There's people that have been intercessors that have been really faithful with their post, and I'm proud of you guys for doing it, that come up here during the week and pray. Um, maybe not every single day there's somebody, but there's a lot of days there's somebody praying. And at home, we have the Watchmen program where there's somebody praying and fasting a day a week and all days are covered, and there's just continual prayer. And what happens is, is when you continually are praying like that, it purges the skies. Did y'all hear me? It purges the skies open. But you can't just pray once or twice and they quit praying and think that the skies are going to stay open because they won't. Satan's kingdom will do everything they can to come overhead and bring a heaviness. But it's the continual, heartfelt prayers. See, the golden altar in the tabernacle represents prayer and worship, remember? And that golden altar was right before the Holy of Holies. It was there, and they would take a hot coal and put it there and then sprinkle incense on that hot coal, and it would, you know, fill the room with incense. That hot coal represents our heart. Our heart is supposed to be on fire for God, and it's out of a burning hunger for Him that the incense of prayer and intercession and worship comes out of your heart. But Jesus said that true worshipers worship in spirit and in truth. That's from the heart. How many people sit through Sunday services and they sit there and just sing out of their head? They've got a song memorized and they're just going through the motions, just singing out of their mind. And God is saying, no, that's not true worship. True worship is in spirit and truth. It comes out of a burning heart. It comes out of a heart that's on fire. And that incense comes out of the heart. 
there's a difference. And that's why I believe as, as, as we've got these intercessors that have joined, um, God has anointed and raised up intercessors here. And I don't just mean prayer warriors. You know, I'm not sure, even as I preach this, a lot of people that will hear this, I don't think that probably 90% of people out there that would hear this, when I talk about intercessors, would even really truly know what I'm talking about, although they think they would. Because the true intercession, that groaning and that travailing that these intercessors have been anointed to do, I've only heard that in some of the older Pentecostal circles and unfortunately it's been something that has died off and a lot of churches nowadays don't want it and it's nobody knows even what but that is the prayers that are really going to move God and let me show you in the scriptures Galatians 4:19. he says my dear children for whom I am again in the pains of childbirth until Christ is formed in you let me tell you something it is the intercessors that are birthing the souls into the kingdom Paul understood that there had to be this groaning and this travailing and a lot of people that hear this they've never heard it they've never been around it and they have absolutely no paradigm to wrap their mind about around what I'm even talking about are you assuming to say I'm not saying that in a critical way I'm just saying that nobody they don't even know what I'm talking about I'm not talking about joining hands in a circle and let's all take turns praying. I'm not talking about that. I'm not saying that's wrong. I'm talking about people that get under the weight of the burden of the Lord and they begin to groan and travail in the spirit, praying in the spirit, and that spirit of God comes upon them and they'll intercede like that and travail until they feel that burden release. And it's actually a birthing. In the Brownsville Revival, I've told you this story, but they were children. The Spirit of God would come upon little children, elementary school children, and they would begin to weep and wail and groan and travail in the Spirit. And I mean, it was so powerful. These little kids, and they, we're not talking about five minutes. We're talking about hours. Think about that. Just that alone is a miracle for little children to be doing one thing for an hour. They were doing it for hours, plural, travailing and groaning, and they would see a visions of people um, being you know saved getting saved and the the leadership of Brownsville had the wisdom to know the Spirit of God is upon these kids they're birthing souls in their prayers the people that are coming down and getting saved are, are the result of people that are travailing like that in the spirit don't stop them you remember what the Pharisees tried to do shut those children up and Jesus said no I'll raise up rocks if you're gonna try that you know don't mess with the kids. I'm telling you, Jesus can use children powerfully. But see, a lot of people, this is something that I, I believe that the only reason, because it was not a good experience in a lot of ways, and it, it was a cold, sterile environment where I was at, but God put me in this church when I was young, and, and it, it was not the best experience for me overall. But I, ran, I, I was able to come in contact with two elderly women that were intercessors and the spirit of God had drawn me into prayer so I was up there praying all the time I was on staff there so I, I had a lot of time I could do that and they would come up and pray and and I heard them I really believe that what they imparted to me I carried that and that is what has been a part of this ministry and people like my daughter and others that 
and Sarah and Melissa and others here that have gotten under that anointing, I believe I got that anointing from them. And then it's here, and now, even if somebody leaves, it seems like God just raises up another intercessor, you know, and it's like this groaning of travailing in the spirit. That is what brings revival. But it's got to be heartfelt, and it's got to be persistent prayer. You cannot stop until it's born. See, a woman, when she goes into labor, there's no stopping. There's no stopping until that child is born. And it's the same way whenever you start the groaning and travailing and intercession. It can take years, but it's not going to stop. The Spirit of God is not going to stop until it's born. And you better not stop because the enemy would love to come and try to brass over those heavens and, and, and shut down that prayer. The greatest threat to Satan's kingdom is prayer. In my opinion, it's prayer. Because prayer produces revival. People say, what's revival? Well, there wouldn't be revival if there wasn't prayer. Same thing with souls being saved. People think, well, these mighty evangelists, no doubt, man, God is using them and I honor them. I love them. I'm thankful for their ministry. But those souls wouldn't be saved if somebody wasn't praying somewhere. And they know that and they'll tell you that. Somebody somewhere prayed and God came down. During the Argentine revival, Carlos Anaconda, and, and let me tell you, that revival shook the entire nation of Argentina. During the height of the revival, it was estimated that there were so many people getting saved that people being born again, the new birth, the new birth rate of people being born again actually was higher than the natural birth rate of people having babies in the nation during the height of the revival. There were churches, literally, this is not an exaggeration, it's going to sound like it, that had to stay open 23 hours a day and they had to have rotating leaders there to accommodate the people that were getting saved and that needed ministry. Literally, I know this sounds exaggerating when I'm saying it, but literally whole cities would come to Christ at one time. There were times that Carlos Anaconda and his group went into a city and when they left, that entire city had gotten saved. Okay? But what they would do is the Spirit of God just fell in Argentina. The power of God came. And you guys know the story about Edward Miller and his small group of people that prayed. It was prayer and fasting many years earlier. They travailed. They groaned. They wept until literally there were pools of tears. They interceded. They cried out to God. They kept praying until they felt that something had broke. And God spoke to them and said, The Lion of the tribe of Judah has roared over Argentina. And so they knew that they had given birth to something, but they didn't know what was coming. Years later, revival breaks out in Argentina, and God raises up first Carlos Anacondia. And what they would do is they would, um, him and his group of intercessors would pray, and God would speak to them, you're going to go to this such and such city. And they would begin to pray and fast and seek God for that city, and they would travail and they would groan in the spirit until they felt in their spirit that God had sent angels to bind up the strong man and God had went before them. How many knows we need God to go before us? And once they felt that God had went before them, then they would go into the city. And they would begin to tell, you know, send people out, you need to come to the revival and let people know and all that. But even during the revival, they had a big stage set up in Carlos. Many of the intercessors, it was a very large stage. They would go up under the stage and they would be groaning and travailing in prayer in the spirit while he was preaching to the lost. People were convicted and converted by the power of God like you wouldn't believe. It was, a, it was just a sovereign move of God. 
So let me read you a story real quick. I've got a couple stories tonight I think will encourage you. I read this Tuesday, but I want this to be on this recording. I want you to hear it again. Let it get in your spirit. This is written by John Kilpatrick. He, he actually, you know, we know about him with the Brownsville Revival, but he grew up under a pastor of um, a smaller Pentecostal church, and they would pray. That pastor would be there. Uh, John Kilpatrick said sometimes they, they prayed every, every week. They prayed several nights a week in the church. And he said sometimes he said it was just him and the pastor, and that was the only two. But he said the pastor never cared about how many people were there because, to be honest, it really doesn't matter as long as we keep praying. You understand that? I'm going to tell you, a lot of times the big numbers can actually hinder because you get people in the mix that are just standing around. They don't know what's going on. Um, maybe they're not right with God. Different things can play into it. But when you get a group of people that are really sincerely right with God and they're in unity, it doesn't matter if it's three or four people. Their prayers can make a huge impact over a city. But listen to this. He said this. He said, I remember reading about a church where the power of God flowed in a wonderful stream of glory. Now, this would be some of the older Pentecostal churches that I'm trying to talk about. See, with these older Pentecostal churches, even though they tried to stick with tradition and they ended up missing some later moves of God, they, they were carrying on from the days of Azusa that revival fire that they picked up from there. And they understood about prayer. And so he said the people enjoyed rich worship, full of exuberance and joy. When they said, praise the Lord, they meant it with all their hearts. And their words didn't resonate a bit like the sounding brass and tinkling cymbals we hear so much in Christian circles today. When they sang songs, it had meaning. And the Spirit of God moved so powerfully during the song service that people often got up on their own without an altar call and walked down to the altar to pray. Now, how many guys have been, some of you were saved under River of Life and you don't know about dead religion. I hope you never learn it, okay? But how many guys have been in churches where it's like that? It's just, it's just feels like you're just going through the motions. It's not really a passionate worship. It just feels kind of dead and sterile. It's, it's a little difficult, okay? That's what happens when there's a lack of prayer and a lack of revival fire. He said in here, when the old silver-haired pastor finally stood to preach, no one noticed that his voice was almost gone from years of heartfelt, spirit-inspired preaching. He preached with depth and a rich sense of God's grace, strengthened by the certainty that there were intercessors and prayer warriors praying for him and for those that were in need. See, back then, the pastors knew that there was intercessors in the church that would be interceding throughout the week, and they were praying for him, they were praying for the church they were praying for the needs of the people and they were praying for people to be saved in the community and he knew that that was continually going on and that was a great strength to him and to the church and let me just say this while i'm thinking about it so i don't lose it i think many of you already know this but rebecca brown wrote a book and she talks in it there was a lady named elaine that got saved out of satanism and she was really high up in it and she was trained and trained others how to infiltrate churches. And most of you have either read the book or know about it. So 
that we all know that it's common for witches and Satanists to try to infiltrate churches, pretend to be Christians. But what's interesting right now at the point I'm trying to make is this. Did you know that their number one goal that they were taught was no matter what, get prayer out of the church? That was their number one goal. Unfortunately, most places that you go now, they wouldn't have to worry about that. They would just start with step two, right? But that's their number one goal was to knock prayer out of that church at any cost because they knew that as long as people were praying, the power of God was at work. And so anyway, Brother Kilpatrick goes on here. This is from his book, When the Heavens Are Brass, chapter one. These praying men and women knew how to touch God. Some of you have learned how to really touch God in your prayers here. It says they had spent much of the week um, secreted away in prayer closets or bedrooms, praying and interceding. Oh God, when our pastor stands to minister, let the anointing be on him. Let your power be there to draw people to you. They weren't interested in being elevated by others. They, neither did they want to be seen or heard by appreciative audiences. Their greatest joy and the source of their fulfillment came when they got alone with God and prayed fervently until God saved souls. See, intercessors have a high calling because you're not going to get the accolades of men. When the old pastor decided to retire, the history of the church was forever changed. Little did the people understand that not only was the ministry of the beloved pastor coming to an end, but the vitality of the church was also coming to an end. Over the years, they had known the depths of the rich anointing and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Solid Bible preaching and godly leadership had embedded a strong foundation in most members of the congregation, drawing them even closer to the Lord and His will. Unfortunately, there was that was not true with all members of the congregation. The individuals of the pulpit committee felt that certain changes need to take place. And when they began to search for a new pastor, they all agreed that they wanted somebody that was very young. They also agreed that it was time to do away with some of the emotionalism in worship. I love Steve Hill's definition of radical. Y'all know. He used to say in Brownsville, he said, some of you look on and you see people down here in the altars dancing, being all crazy in their worship, and you say, oh man, they're radical. He said, the definition of radical in revival is somebody that's closer to Jesus than you. All right? But they wanted to do away with all that emotionalism that was in worship, especially the groaning and travailing of the intercessors. The committee had no difficulty finding a preacher who met their qualifications. Sadly, they had never bothered to ask God what his qualifications might be. The candidate chosen by the pulpit committee perfectly matched their list of qualifications. When he preached, there was little of the irritating emotionalism they had so wanted to avoid, and the congregation seemed amazingly docile. You know what that was? The lack of the anointing. The committee found the peace quiet and refreshing. One irritation did remain, however. The former, the former pastor's most faithful and elderly intercessor continued to rise from her pew at the end of the service and kneel down on the carpet at the same two worn spots where her fragile knees had knelt for so many decades to plead for souls of the lost. The new pastor was quite uncomfortable with the intercession of this elderly saint. And some of you guys know what I'm talking about. You hear the groaning and the travailing and the, the moaning and the tongues of the intercessors. They help me know there's a lot of people out there that don't like them. And she would pray. She would publicly travail. My God, send us revival. My God, give us souls this morning. Don't let souls leave here and go to hell. That was the most difficult part of his duty. So he was so disturbed was a new pastor that he was strongly considering discarding this politically incorrect and somewhat primitive religious ritual from the order of service. 
He felt that there was something spooky about it all. And the former pastor, on the other hand, had looked forward to the dear saint's prayers, knowing that it poured from the heart of God and that the Spirit of God was praying and travailing through this godly woman. Unfortunately, no one in Bible college had ever covered these subjects with the new pastor of the church. The young pastor endured this public spectacle for about six months, but one Sunday morning after he finished his sermon, he took action. As usual, the dear old sister was down on her knees travailing, so lost in intercession that she didn't even realize the pastor had ended his sermon without giving an altar call. And she was praying down there, oh God, oh God, send revival. And her little wrinkled face was wet with tears. And the pastor tapped the elderly intercessor on the shoulder and said, honey, there won't be any need for that anymore. We don't want that in this church because it hinders newcomers from coming in. They just don't understand it. And the pastor didn't know, but by his ignorant actions that day, he posted an ancient Hebrew name, Ichabod, over the front door of the church, which means the glory of the Lord has departed. And when Pastor Kilpatrick opened this, he said, I remember reading about a church. So apparently this is a true story. Prayer is what opens the heavens. And I've seen where churches have neglected and got away from prayer and the heavens begin to brass over. How many knows when you go into some places, like I can come here during the week, as soon as you walk in, it's really easy to worship and pray. Why? because the heavens are open and they're open because yes things have been put in order sin has been dealt with things like that but they're also open because of persistent heartfelt continued intercession and prayer that's what has purged the skies and got the heavens open you can come here and pray you can soak in the glory i felt that same atmosphere that i feel here i felt it when i was at toronto and at brownsville the heavens are open and there's no hindrance. You feel like you can pray and worship right to the throne room. And there's nothing there to hinder your prayers. But some of the things that we've got to understand is the whole mindset and a lot of what we know today in Christianity has been so changed from the original um, revival paradigm that now people have gotten to where they're trying to do things a completely different way. I've seen so many people talk about this is revival, that's revival, this will bring revival, that will bring revival, and they don't have a clue what they're talking about, not even a little bit. What brings revival is prayer. That's it. And they talk about everything else but prayer. The one thing that's actually going to create a true revival. And what I shared on Tuesday, the whole mindset of, well, you know, we don't want somebody coming in to be offended. Listen, honestly, I don't say this cocky or with a bad attitude, but I don't care if we're going after God if that offends them. I'll go to sleep tonight, and I won't even think about that, that somebody got offended because God moved. It doesn't even bother me a little bit. If they don't like God moving, there's plenty of places he's not moving. Then go there, you know. But why would we take the fact that we've pressed into God and God's been moving so powerfully and his presence so powerful and we've got to a place of prayer and intercession where things have gotten to where it's really intense now and somebody comes in that's probably not even living like they should they're backslid or they're religious or whatever they come in and it's like well we need to tone everything down to accommodate to this person over here to me the mindset of that is completely ridiculous we should be thinking i hope everybody's hearing this and it's not just 
What we should be saying is that person there needs to be brought up spiritually to a place of maturity where Book of Acts Christianity is normal to them now. Instead of thinking, well, you know, we need to water it all down and just calm everything down so we don't offend somebody. Listen, the Spirit of God, I think that people are trying to do things in their own human strength. That's the problem. The Bible says that nobody can come to the Father. No man can come to Jesus, rather, unless the Father draw him. And the Father draws by the Spirit. Now think about what Jesus said. Nobody can come to him unless the Father draw them. Jesus didn't say, nobody can come to me unless your program draws them. Nobody can come to me unless your worship team draws them. Nobody can come to me unless your perfect evangelism draws them. The Spirit of God has got to draw them, or it's not going to be a true conversion. What we're dealing with in a lot of Christianity is this. People have got great programs and a lot of good things going on, and people are just coming in, and there's no conviction of the Holy Spirit to create an atmosphere of godly sorrow that leads to repentance. Are y'all hearing me? A godly sorrow, a repentance of sin, a godly sorrow that leads to repentance and understanding by the Spirit of God that I'm lost and I need a Savior. They just come in and they just amalgamate into what's going on. They might say some little prayer, they may go through some, some, some kind of a, uh, you know, a ritual of membership or whatever, but they're not even truly born of the Spirit of God. They haven't had an encounter with the risen Christ. They're just religious. And they come to church because it's a fun social event for their family. And the power of the cross is not really preached and it's not really understood. You understand that the power of the gospel is this, that we're sinners that need a savior, but it's also a complete and total death to yourself. And that's not preached, so it's not understood. And so what we have is we have a churches full of people that many of them have never truly had an actual born-again experience they may have felt some kind of euphoria during worship, but they've never been born of God, really, truly born of God. They've never had an encounter with Jesus Christ that totally changed their life. They haven't. They've just joined a church. And they go, and there's not an atmosphere of the Spirit of God moving to deal with that. And they've substituted the anointing and power of the Holy Spirit for entertainment-based things. See, the power of the cross is not redirecting people. That people come in and they go, oh, let me tell you how your life can be even better. Let me give you a motivational speech of how you can do even better with investing your finances and how you can eat this nutritious food and exercise and now you can be a healthier person. And let me give you some tips on how your marriage can improve. That's not the gospel. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the, that, that all has its place, but it's not the gospel. And the gospel needs to be preached again where people feel a conviction and they feel like, look, I'm, I'm lost. I need a savior. And if people don't like that message, it, I'm not backing down from it. I don't care. 
That is the gospel. And if you haven't heard that, you haven't heard the gospel. You heard a bunch of garbage somewhere. The gospel will convict people and bring them to repentance of their sin and a born-again experience where the old passes away and everything becomes new by the power of God. And churches have gotten away from that and they don't want to offend anybody. I wish to God that people would read the Bible now with the Holy Spirit helping them see how much Jesus offended people. They, 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 they don't know the Jesus I know. That's the problem. They have some other Jesus they've made up. And they, that, his, that Jesus fits their sin. That Jesus fits their little teachings and things. That. But the power of the cross brings people to a place of complete and total death to self. That's why Paul said... I am crucified with Christ. There has to be a death process. Everything about us has got to be nailed to the cross. You know why there's a bunch of garbage in the church a lot of times? We've got Jezebels that buck up against the pastor and Judases that rebel and all this, this splitting and stuff because if people would pray and they would really pray in a move of God and somebody had the guts to get up there and preach the gospel and call sin, sin, the power of God would convict them. Many of them would repent in the altar and get it dealt with there, or they'd run out the back door and you wouldn't see them anymore. But either way, the church would be purged. So the power of the gospel and the power of the cross isn't to redirect people to if you're going through a problem, let me tell you a good doctor I know. Let me tell you a good financial advisor I know. No, the power of the gospel is, is, is so powerful that when people come, it is the source of their salvation, their healing, their deliverance, their breakthrough. The power of God. And I just want the Holy Spirit to know that I'm not ashamed of the Holy Spirit. I'm not ashamed of his power. You know, when people come, if people don't like tongues, they don't like whatever. Like I said before, there's a whole lot of places it's not going on, and they may feel more comfortable there. But I'm going after God for Book of Acts Christianity today. So let me give you a few more things. The war that's in the heavenlies. There's a lot of places, a lot of people, that will move into geographic regions where there's a strong spirit about that region. And God sent them there because they have a different, they have some kind of an anointing and gifting about them that is supposed to directly oppose the spirit of that region. If it's a region, I can give you an example just off the top of my head right now. There's a pastor I know that in this particular city, praise and worship is just not there. I mean, it's a dry place. And there, for whatever reason, the guy can't sing or anything like that. But there is, and he doesn't do, he doesn't lead worship, but there's an anointing on him to facilitate very powerful praise and worship. And I was a part of his ministry for a little while, and I know what I'm talking about. There was a freedom. He had something on him that released praise and worship. Heartfelt, good praise and worship, powerful praise and worship, dancing, freedom. 
And his, his church, man, stuck out completely and totally the opposite of everything else in that region. I didn't know of another place remotely close to it. Everything else, the worship was very dry and dead. What would have happened if he went into that region like most people do? And instead of being willing to plow through all the persecution, all the criticism, all the false accusations, the attacks of the Jezebel spirit, which I know he went through, the attacks of, of you know, betrayals and all the garbage, all the gossip from other ministries saying he was a cult and a weirdo because of the freedom in their worship, because it's different than what they knew. What would have happened if he went in there and said, you know what, I'm tired of all this. Let's just calm everything down and get like everybody else. Instead of him going against the prevailing spirit of that region, he would have conformed to the spirit of that region. And the moment he did that and began, he did, if he did that, he would begin to be in agreement with the principalities and powers over that region. Once he did that, I promise you the heavens would have started brassing over and that ministry would have become sterile and it would have become extremely difficult to pray and worship there. But because he was willing to not be intimidated by the Jezebels, because I saw some of them really go after him, he wasn't willing to be intimidated by them. He wasn't going to let them control the way he preached and control even though they'd buck up against him, you know, like they do. He didn't let that stop him. He didn't let anything stop him. He kept going after God. And let me tell you, that place was powerful in praise and worship. The presence of God was there. And he was a hub like an oasis in that region. But so many people are sent into areas because their ministry is the opposite of what's there. I believe that that has a lot to do with River of Life. It can be the opposite of everything else around you. But you can't conform to the Spirit. You've got to keep being different. Even though you're going to be called a lot of names, there's going to be an element of persecution because you're different. How many knows just by virtue of the fact that you're different, there's a lot of persecution right there? It has nothing to do with whether you're right or wrong. It just has to do with you're just simply different than the next guy. Well, you must be weird. You're not like us. That's the mentality of a lot of people. But I believe with all my heart that God has given us something in River of Life that's very different than what's around. But as revival comes, it's going to be a wineskin that God can fill. Amen? All right, so let me give you a few more things tonight. Just let me reiterate, it is that heartfelt, earnest prayer. That persistent prayer. I'm going to press in until God moves. Before I read this next story, let me tell you. When we first started praying, really our ministry started, if we're going to be honest and truthful, it really just started here um, an offshoot from another church and it was really just worship and prayer and evangelism. That's all it was. It wasn't even a church. But over time, you know, it, it morphed into what it is. But nonetheless, prayer has always been the foundation. But how many knows, and, and my family can tell you, there were times when prayer wasn't like it is now. You know, it was harder to pray. We were really, we felt like we were alone out there praying, you know, so to speak. And, but I remember telling them, we're not going to stop praying and we're not going to stop witnessing. doesn't matter. doesn't matter if there's two people go out witnessing. doesn't matter if it's just me and my family at the prayer meeting. We're going to keep praying and we're going to keep witnessing and we're going to keep being faithful. 
And we were persistent, and I was stubborn about it. There was times I felt like giving up in my flesh, but I didn't. I'm going to tell you, now you can feel the heavens have opened from persistent prayer. And when we go out witnessing, the Spirit of God is in the witnessing more than ever before. And, that, and I'm telling you right now, that is nothing compared to what's coming. This is just, you know, you look at a torrential downpour. This is just a couple of raindrops that are beginning right now for what's coming. Let me give you just a quick glimpse into revival. During the Welsh revival, it was commonly reported that men would go into the bars to drink, not wanting to go to their homes because they knew their wives were praying there <laughs> and the presence of God was there. But they couldn't escape him even in the bars as they would take a drink in their hands. An unseen hand would stop the drink and they would run from that place to their homes and get saved. As the Spirit converted many of the profane, ungodly coal miners, his presence went with them to work, and they would start their days with prayer and worship. It was said that you could feel the presence of God in the coal mines as much as you could at church. Some visitors were once asking for directions to the meetings that took place in the Welsh Revival, and they were told to take the, the train to such and such place to get out there. And they would ask the people telling them, they said, but how will we know when we get there? And they said, you'll feel it. And they did. After getting out of the train, they asked for further directions, and they were told again, oh, you go down that way. And, and they said, well, how will we know? He said, you'll feel it. And they did. The Holy Presence is not geographically limited, though. So I remember if you went on these revival campuses, I went to many. I remember pulling up in the 90s to Rodney Hart Brown at Calvary Cathedral in Fort Worth and the power of God was there. And, and I was with a couple of the elderly intercessors I told you about. They took me to Rodney. Anyway, we were driving down the road. And as soon as we pulled into the parking lot, it was literally like coming into a dome of glory fire. I couldn't believe it. I mean, have you ever had that happen like a suddenly? Like you're, you're driving along and everything's one way and all of a sudden you go into the manifest presence and it's like, whoa, what is that? You know, we were just awestruck. We went in there, and it was just Holy Ghost pandemonium, you know, Rodney's meetings, of course. It was the same way at Brownsville. I mean, you, you could go on the campus. I, I literally felt times where I would go on the campus, and my body would just start trembling under the power of God that was physically resident at that campus. But it's not limited to just there. There was a group of, of young people that had come to the revival out of Dallas here, not even far from here, actually. Went to the Brownsville Revival. They took their whole youth group. They were in a big van. They all got mightily touched at the revival. They were coming back. The Spirit of God fell on them so hard that they had to pull off into a gas station. Young people fell out of the van. They're all over the ground, weeping and wailing and travailing. Some of them probably laughing under the power. It was so intense. And the, the gas station owner was like, we're not going to bother the big man. Just let him do what he wants to do, you know. And people, and people would drive by, not know what's going on. They had pictures of it. But the point is that the Spirit of God was not just contained in one location. Here's another story. Some visitors were once asking directions to the meetings in part of Wales, and they were told, that, I'm sorry, let me go down here. Ships that drew near to the American ports in 1858 came within a definite zone of heavenly influence. Ship after ship arrived with the same tale 
of sudden conviction and conversion. They ended up in a glory bubble by accident. They just shipped their little boat right in there. And it says, one ship captain and the entire crew of 30 men found Christ at sea and entered the harbor rejoicing. Revival broke out on this battleship in North Carolina through four Christian men who had been meeting in the bowels of the ship for prayer. One evening, they were filled with the spirit and burst into song. Ungodly shipmates who came down to mock were gripped by the power of God and the laugh of the scornful was soon changed into a cry of the penitent. Many were smitten down. That means they were struck down by the power of God on the floor. That's what that means. And a gracious work broke out and they continued night after night till they had seen, till they um, sent ashore for ministers to help them. And the battleship became a Bethel, became a, a revival church. It was said about Smith Wigglesworth. I'm just telling you some some good stories here that smith wigglesworth there was some drunk and listen back in the day those ships would leave out and once they got out to sea they entered international waters and there was no laws it was anything goes okay and so they would get out there and, and their 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 ship would turn into a brothel and you know a drunken bard everybody's just getting drunk and sleeping around everything else and so they, they had heard about Smith Wigglesworth. This is a true story. They had asked him to come, and they wanted him to sing a song in the bar because they all wanted to mock and make fun of him. And God smoke, spoke to Smith and said, I want you to go. And Smith Wigglesworth couldn't sing. So how many knows when you've got a bunch of people already wanting to make fun of you? And, you know, and so he goes, and Smith Wigglesworth was a powerful man of God. And he gets on the boat, and I can just see him. You know, he's got that suit on. How many of you guys have seen the pictures? I mean, he's got his little Bible. Here he comes, you know. And they're ready to just all just make fun of this guy. And he gets up there and starts singing. This is a true story. It's verified. All these heathen were there ready to just get totally drunk and, and have sex with prostitutes. And, just, and the power of God hit that place so strong that people began to get saved and weep and cry. And it was a Holy Ghost revival broke out. So the power of God turned that situation completely around. It says here, I heard a story about a man here in the States who had witnessed to his unsafe friend and prayed for him for years. We were talking about persistent, heartfelt prayer. He had prayed for his friend for years. One day, that friend came over to borrow a tool, but no one was home, so he went around to the tool shed to find what he was looking for, and suddenly, the presence of God overtook him. He was convicted of his sins and broke down, putting his faith in Jesus Christ at that very moment. And when he told his Christian friend what had happened to him, he discovered a simple explanation. That faithful believer had prayed with tears, earnest, heartfelt, continued prayer, okay, for the salvation of his friend, making intercession for him in that very shed. And the Holy Spirit was there. Did y'all catch that? So his heathen friend just needed to borrow a tool and walked right into a glory bubble. He got hit by the power of God and got convicted. Another story I've never told you guys in the Brownsville Revival, there was this guy, Michael Brown had come from the Revival, saw this guy there, and, and he said, hey, did you come from the Revival? And, and Michael Brown said, yeah, as a matter of fact, I did. Because he knew that they'd be getting out real late. It was like 2 in the morning or something. This guy owned a store. And he said, yeah, me and my family got saved there. And Michael said, well, that's great, you know, because I mean, so many people got saved. And he said, well, let me tell you what happened. And he was telling Michael Brown this. He said, look, he said, what happened was I was a backslidden Christian, so I knew I needed to be getting right anyway, but he said my wife and daughter did not know the Lord. 
And he said, I went first and I brought my wife and daughter with me, but I was the first to really respond. He said, I went down to the altar when the altar call was gave, I gave my life to Jesus. But he said, the power of God, he said, my wife and daughter were skeptical and set back. And he said, they literally felt a wind of the spirit of God blow by them. And my daughter began to shake uncontrollably. And my wife was trying to hold her, but she's all shaking, you know. And then during the altar time, they go through and pray for people. The unsaved wife and daughter fall out under the power and on the ground. You would think that that would be enough to get their attention, but they still didn't want to accept Christ at that point. But they came back again and they realized that, you know, God had broken through all that hardness and they gave their life to Christ. But the power of God to save even the most stubborn people, you know what I'm saying? The hardest people, those that are just, that, that really have um, like a shell around their heart, their emotions. After the night of prayer in the Hebrides, when the house literally shook with the presence of the Lord, how many of you guys would like to be in a meeting where literally the building shook? I would too. The day following when they came to church, we found that the meeting house was already crowded out. A stream of buses had come from the four quarters of the island who had told them of the services. I have no way of knowing. God has his own manner of working when men are praying in faith. A butcher's van brought seven men from a distance of 17 miles. We gathered in the church and I spoke for an hour. The Spirit of God was at work. All over the building, men and women were crying for mercy. That's revival. I've seen it. I've seen where people are, are around the altar area weeping and wailing and crying out to God for mercy to save them. And on the roadside, I could hear the strong cries of weeping men. I saw both men and women swooning, falling out and going into trances. Many were crying, oh God, have mercy on me. A young man beneath the pulpit, oh God, hell is too good for me, was crying out for salvation. The seven men who came in the butcher's van were all gloriously converted that night. In the field of evangelism today, the desperate need is for the conviction of sin. Conviction that will bring men on their faces before a holy God. That's Duncan Campbell talking. He knows what he's talking about. We need that kind of move of God today, don't we? What would it be like to go out and we go witnessing and the Spirit of God is so strong that the Spirit of God has gone before us and people around some of them fall on the ground under the power. Others are crying. You hear them on the ground weeping and saying, oh God, have mercy on me. Things like that. That's what can happen in revival. And people have seen it. I, I had a taste of it at Brownsville. You see that type of power come down. We saw that in America in times past. We've seen it in the first awakening with Wesley Brothers and Whitfield and Edwards. We saw it in the second great awakening with Finney. We saw it at Cane Ridge and we saw it at Azusa Street. And I'm about to tell you, we're about to see it again here in America. Amen. So let me read this story about Elijah and then we'll close this out. Elijah faced Jezebel's spirit. He faced false prophets and he was raised up in difficult times. Let me say that again. Elijah faced the Jezebel spirit. He faced false prophets and he was raised up in difficult times. How many knows in today's society, we're seeing a strong Jezebel spirit, we're seeing false prophets, and it is difficult times, isn't it? So God is looking for some Elijahs that he can raise up. First, King, First Kings 18.20, it says, Ahab sent a message among the sons of Israel and brought the prophets together at Mount Carmel. 
Elijah came near to tell all the people, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him, but if Baal, follow him. But, but the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I alone am, am left as the prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets, prophets have 450 men. Now give them two oxen, and let them choose one ox for themselves and cut it up and place it on the wood, but put no fire under it, and I will prepare the other ox and lay it on the wood, and I will put fire under it. Then you call on the, on the name of your God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire is God. And they said, well, this is a good idea. So Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose one ox for yourselves. He let them pick the ox. Prepare, prepare it first. You can go first. He gave them every opportunity. Call on the name of your God, but put no fire under it. So they took the ox, which was given to them, and they prepared it. And they called on the name of Baal from morning till noon. O Baal, answer us. But there was no voice. No one answered. And they leaped. Um, about the altar which they had made it came about noon that Elijah began to mock and make fun of them call out with a loud voice he said he's a god maybe he's occupied maybe he's gone aside or maybe he's on a journey perhaps he's asleep and you need to wake him up so they cried with a loud voice cutting themselves according to their custom with swords and lances and blood gushed from them they were cutting their body open and blood running when midday was passed they raved until the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice but there was no voice no one answered and no one paid attention. Notice the time of the evening sacrifice. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. So all the people came near to him and he repaired the altar of the Lord, which had been torn down. I guarantee you by Jezebel's cohorts, right? Now listen to me. The altar was torn down. Did everybody hear that? The altar had been torn down. What does altar speak of? Worship and prayer. It had been torn down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob to whom the word of the Lord had come saying Israel shall be your name so with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord he rebuilt the altar he rebuilt the altar listen some people are getting away from prayer we need to rebuild the altar of prayer again they want all these different formulas oh, if we do this it'll bring revival if we do that it'll bring revival prayer brings revival that's it and so when we quit trying to figure out all these different methods and think we're smarter than the Bible, think we're smarter than all the past revivals that have ever existed that were born in prayer, trying to do it every other way, if we'll get back to just say, look, this simple stone altar here that had been torn down, let's just do it God's way and let's rebuild the altar. He arranged the wood and cut the oxen to pieces, laid it on the wood, and he said, fill four pitchers with water and pour it on the burnt offering on the wood. He said, do it a second time. Then he said, do it a third time. Water flowed from the altar and also filled the trench. Elijah stood in prayer. He said, at this time, at the time of the offering of the evening sacrifice, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, today let it be known that you are the God of Israel, and I am your servant. I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, answer me, O Lord, that this people may know you, O Lord our God, that you have turned their heart back again. Then the fire of God fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up all the water in the trench. And when all the people saw this, they fell on their faces and said, The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Don't let one of them escape. So they seized them. Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slew them there. And then I'm going to skip down, okay? It says, Elijah said to Ahab, 
Go up and eat and drink, for there is a sound of the roar of a heavy shower. So Ahab went up to eat and drink. But Elijah went to the top of Mount Carmel, and he crouched down on the earth and put his face between his knees. And he said to his servant, now he's praying and interceding, okay? He said to his servant, go up and look toward the sea. So he went up and looked, and he said, there's nothing. Go back. He did this seven times. And about the seventh time, he said, behold, a cloud the size of a man's hand is coming up from the sea. He said, go up and tell Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down. There's a heavy shower. You better go now so it doesn't stop you. In a little while, the sky grew black and clouds and wind, and there was a heavy shower, and Ahab rode all the way to Jezreel. And the hand of the Lord was on Elijah, and he girded up his loins and outran Ahab to Jezreel. The Spirit of the Lord came upon Elijah, and he outran the chariot of the king. You know, the king had the best horses. But anyway, going back to the story, Elijah said, get up and eat and drink. I hear the sound of rain. I want you all to please get this. I feel this is the word of the Lord for River of Life, and quite honestly, it's the word of the Lord for the body of Christ in general. We need to get back to prayer, okay? But Elijah told Ahab, go up and eat and drink. I hear the sound of rain. It hadn't started raining yet. He heard it in the spirit. If you guys can lay hold of this, I really believe it will impact you tonight. There are people like myself and others, you can hear it in your spirit. It's not here yet, but it's coming. You can hear it. You can hear the sound of a heavy rain that's coming. We know revival is at the door. You can smell the beginning of rain. You feel it in your spirit. And that's what Elijah told Ahab. He, he believed the prophecy that God had given him that the rain is coming. And listen, we've had prophets speaking to us saying there's a third great awakening. All of America blazed in the fires of revival. Dallas will be the hub, this great move of God. The prophets are speaking. Are we listening and are we believing the word of the Lord? And we're not talking about one or two people. We're talking about a lot of people, credible people. And parts of the prophecy have already been fulfilled. And I'm telling you, great Revival is on the horizon. God's not through with America. America is not going to be destroyed, even though Satan would like it to be. He heard it in his spirit. He believed the word of the Lord. So Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah, what did Elijah do? When he knew that revival was coming, the rain was coming, Elijah went to a place of prayer, and he began to intercede and travail until it happened. See, it's not enough to just hear the rain. You hear the prophecies. Revival's coming, revival's coming. Great, I believe it with all my heart. But we've got to follow biblical patterns here that that is not a call to sit around and, and eat and drink and watch TV. That's a call to get into prayer. See, let's say this about this story. Elijah knew that Ahab's prayers weren't going to be answered. Elijah told Ahab, you just go eat and drink. And Elijah went and prayed. We need men and women of God that are, that are holy men and women of God that are going to press in. Remember, the heartfelt continued prayer of the righteous makes tremendous power available, dynamic, and it's working. It's that prayer of the righteous pressing in. And Elijah, he kept praying. He would send his servant. He'd come back. Nothing's there. He kept praying. Think about it. He did that seven times before he finally saw a little breakthrough and the cloud the size of a man's hand came and Elijah knew now... The prophecy was given. Now I know revival has been birthed. It has begun. 
And so then he was able to leave prayer. But he prayed until revival was born. That's what I'm talking about, that persistence to not give up until you see the cloud the size of a man's hand. Well, River of Life, we've already got to move here in-house, but we're praying and believing until we see the cloud the size of a man's hand begin over the harvest field. And we start seeing the harvest come in and great revival break forth. But even when revival breaks out, it's not a time to stop praying. We've got to keep prayer going to sustain the move of God. You know, one of the things I've seen, I've seen that people, everybody say lazy. I've seen that a lot of people are lazy and they don't want to be the one that has to get underneath the brass heaven and pray until the heavens open. Some of y'all know what I'm talking about that have been with me very long. Whenever you're praying and the heavens are brass and you feel like you're pressing through and you're like Elijah on Mount Carmel and you're praying and you don't see the cloud. You're praying, you don't see the cloud. It's hard to pray. A lot of people give up. But if they'll keep at it, eventually the skies will begin to part more and more and more and more. And it seems to come in layers. It feels like this layer of something went away and the presence of God is stronger. Again, it, it just keeps happening as you pray. But see, Elijah had to deal with the sin. He gathered up all the false prophets, had them killed. He cleaned house. He rebuilt the altar, purged the sin, prophesied the word of God, and then prayed it through. But what I've seen with a lot of people is they don't want to pray revival in, but here's what they want to do. How many knows everybody's got an ego to some degree? They want to go where God's already moving and associate with that and rub elbows there and act like, hey, I'm a big shot. I'm part of that. And they want their name attached to it. But they will be the last person when there's a brass heaven that God needs to actually birth something significant. They'll be the last one that'll show up. They want to run to other places and act like, yeah, I'm a part of this. And they didn't even have anything to do with getting that breakthrough there. They just run from place to place. How about a group of people that will find out where God needs an open heaven and will get under that thing and pay the price in prayer instead of running from place to place just to suit your little ego? Amen? And I've, seen, I've literally seen that. People are coming to mind that do that. And they, it's like a, a shot to their pride because they feel like I can associate with this over here. You know? And they also criticize the churches that they live around. You say, well, you know, God's not moving. Well, you know, why don't you go pray? Maybe if you quit criticizing and actually go in there and pray, maybe God would move. Maybe that pastor's asking God to send him some intercessors. But you're so busy getting your little ego over here that you're, you're too good to go in there and pray. There was a man by the name of J. Edwin Orr that was a great author of revival and he emphasized in his writings that revival comes in desperate times please get that god sends great revivals in the worst possible times which should be a great comfort right now to everybody in this room god sends great revival and that's a historic fact he went back and studied all the great moves of god and he concluded 
that one of the ingredients of revival was that they were in dark, desperate times and they desperately needed a move of God. I believe somehow, and I don't know how, but Satan's kingdom knows to a degree that God is about to move. He, they just do. They pick up maybe on the prophecies or whatever, but they know Satan's kingdom knows when a church and even an individual is about to get blessed. Something's about to happen in their life, good, from God. Somehow they pick up on it, and they really begin to oppose. They really begin to try to hinder. How many of y'all have experienced an attack before blessing? And the level of your blessing is going to be the level of the attack. I don't know how they know, but they figure it out. And so they really start hindering and trying to oppress to stop. And I believe that what um, J. Edwin Orr saw through history was that God was about to move, and somehow the devil's kingdom picked up on it, and they began to really try to bring the absolute worst oppression and heaviness and sinful activity that they could possibly do, hoping that God would change his mind and not show up. And that's exactly one of the strategies of the enemy right now in America, is to try to stir up so much sin to change God's mind. But the problem with that is, is that God is faithful and he's not going to change his mind. Y'all hearing me? God is faithful and he's not going to change his mind just because the devil's stirring up sin. God knows that sinners sin. That's what they do. And God knows that the prayers of the righteous are needed. Listen, God said that when Abraham came to him and said, far be it from the Lord, sweep away the righteous with the wicked, and he prayed for Sodom, God would have spared Sodom for 10 people. He said he would have. He just couldn't find 10 people. But notice this, God had already predetermined destruction for Sodom, but he still would have relented for Abraham's prayers. One man, one man. So nobody can tell me, because see, Satan made the mistake of letting me read that in the Bible. Nobody can tell me that one man's prayers can't affect a nation. There's too, many, there's too many scriptures in the Bible to prove that's wrong. People think, oh, it's got to be millions of people gathering to prayer. Wrong. It can be a handful of people praying. And a lot of times, a handful of people will get more done. Honestly, it's a fact. Because they're in unity. It's not about the mass numbers. It's about the heartfelt, continued, persistent prayers of the righteous in unity. But Edwin Orr saw, he said, listen, one of the things I've seen is every time, it was a horrible time God sent revival. It was desperate times, dark times. And I talked about earlier, we've got to get back to the true gospel and quit trying to use the cross for what it's not supposed to be used for to just make people's lives better like they are the cross isn't there to say look if you're doing good financially jesus will even make it better i understand prosperity and i believe in but that's not the gospel we first got to get to a place of a total death where the cross really works through us a death to self and a resurrection into new life that's the heart of the gospel and then once we're really seeking after God with all of our hearts seeking first his kingdom he'll take care of these other things that are promises in the scripture but we've got to quit putting majoring on minors we've got to get back to the heart of the issue that there are people perishing many of whom are sitting in church chairs today they're on their way to hell they don't know the Lord and that is concerning to me So here's why I close with coming through the blood. Whenever you say, well, I want to have heartfelt, continued prayer, the key to it is coming through the blood. 
That's why God has laid on my heart as a pastor here in River of Life that we take time to take Holy Communion before we go into God's presence. It is a time to examine ourselves and get things right and to get covered in the blood and so there's no hindrance to go into the glory realm, okay? It's the blood that brings you in. And this is Acts 3.19, Peter preached. He said, repent then and turn to God so that your sins may be wiped out and that times of refreshing may come from the Lord. So I ask this question as I close this out now. Will people, will you guys be faithful to the Lord to be prayer warriors and intercessors? That's what God's asking right now. He needs, I'm going to tell you, that from what I see across the board in the body of Christ right now, I don't see enough prayer. Yet at the same time, there are groups that are praying. But I'm talking about across the board. You look at churches across the board. There's not enough prayer, and there hasn't been. But if we'll begin to seek God, I'm telling you, revival will come, but it's going to come through prayer. And even the groups that are praying, I don't think that a lot of them even understand deep intercession, the deep groans and travailing of the intercessors. I don't think that they really understand it and they're not practicing it. So that level of, that's what I call revival prayer. That is revival prayer. That's what distinguishes. See, there's people that will get under the weight, and you can read about it throughout all of the revivals. There were always groups of people um, before Argentina was uh, um, Edward Miller and them that they would get under the weight of that burden, and they would travail and groan and intercede, and it gave birth to a move of God. It's not just praying out of your head. It's praying out of the spirit, out of your heart. It's a heartfelt, earnest prayer. That is really intercession. And these intercessors that are getting under that, the, the Holy Spirit's anointing and travailing like that, it's accomplishing so much in the spirit realm. And you don't know it right now, but there's been so much that's been deposited in the spiritual bank account that down the road when revival comes, it's really going to explode back. You, you reap what you sow. You sow in tears, you reap with joy. Well, it's been prayed all these years. The intercessor's crying out, I'm telling you, it's stored up. And there's going to come a day when revival breaks out that all these souls are going to be getting saved and, and all this is breaking forth, but it's simply a response to the prayer that was already prayed. 